All right, got another reaction episode today. We are going to kick it off with what Neil has first. So what do you got on your docket, Neil? Right now, we're seeing a lot of corporations integrating AI into their businesses, and they believe it's the next best thing since sliced bread. And I believe it's just going to hurt people's marketing and user experience and just overall business um, when they're misusing AI. And we're seeing that all the time. I'll give you a prime example of this. So check this out. My daughter is three years old. She's starting out of school where you got to end up taking an IQ test. And you have to start taking the IQ test once you're five years old. So she has, she's about to turn four. So she roughly has a year before she has to take our first IQ test. And when you think about the IQ test, you, you do some problems, you're getting some right, you're getting some wrong. So I started Googling what is getting eight out of 10 right? What is getting seven out of 10 right? Just ratios, because I wanted to know. So I started having my daughter take them. And it's 100 questions. It was too many to go through. As a three-year-old, she's not going to get through all of them. The first 10, she got uh, 7 out of 10 right. The second 10, she got 9 out of 10 right. So at this point, she's averaging 8 out of, uh, or quote-unquote, 18 out of, no, not 18. Uh, She's averaging 16 out of 20. And then the next group, she got 9 out of 10 right. And then she got 8 out of 10 right, right? So you're doing them in batches of 10. So then when I started Googling, what does it mean if you get 8 out of 10? Because I'm just trying to figure out the score without what my daughter scores without her having to take all 100 questions. Land on Quora. Quora ends up using this AI bot that is just typing answers to you and trying to help you out. And I'm like, dude, can't you just give me the old Quora where it just tells me 8 out of 10 means this? This is the rough IQ score because some of these schools have minimums. Like if your kid doesn't score 138, uh, you're not even allowed to apply and you can't even be admitted. Now, if your kid scores 139, 140 or whatever the number is, it still doesn't mean that your kid's going to get it. But we got, we digress on that. Now you guys understand why I was using it. But when I was on court, I'm like, this is such a shit experience. Why don't you just give me the answer? I don't need some AI bot typing out to me the answer and giving me a long-winded multiple paragraph answer when I'm just looking for, hey, 8 out of 10 means this score or this range. And here's the crazy part. When it kept typing me the paragraphs, the first go around, it didn't even answer it for me. So then I click the back button, I go to the next Quora listing and it kind of gave me the answer. And then I just close that. And then I uh, finally see the Quora normal thread where someone's just typing in the question, someone's answering it. And I got the answer. And I was like, cool, you're using AI where it doesn't need to be used. You could have just told me the answer that someone already answered in the shortest possible form versus showing me paragraphs of an AI bot typing out an answer to me. Yeah, so I think what really matters here is the user experience and the context. What tends to happen when things get overhyped, such as crypto, such as AI, is we try to put crypto, we try to put blockchain into everything, we try to put AI into everything. Now, I do believe that Quora is going to figure it out over time. Are they are they publicly traded, Neil? No, I think Quora, they, from my no? understanding, is not publicly traded. But you know, you okay. got it right. Eventually, they'll figure it out. But it was the same thing that happened with blockchain. It's the same thing that's happening with AI. It's just like if someone wants to integrate the AI with weather, what's the weather in Las Vegas, Nevada? Well, I don't care for a paragraph answer. I just want to see a graph and a chart that just shows me the damn weather right now. Yep. Look, 
AI is supposed to help save time, make things easier. I'm actually going to share an example of what we've been doing with our leads that come in for my ad agency, Single Grain. And so one of the windows here, so I'm going to share my screen right here. Neil, can you see this? Yes? Not yet. Now I can. Okay. So this is a lead that came in, right? So it'll show like, you know, it, it'll show like what search term they came through and then it'll show the message and then what they're looking for, right? What we do now here is we've added this through AI. So we added a brief summary on what the company is and we added in a couple of ideas here. So our BDRs, when they reach out to the company, it's like, oh, you know, here's what you can do. You can increase conversion rates by optimizing product descriptions, rewarding bullet points, adding comparison, top rated products and all that. This is actually, these are kind of generic, um, generic, insights but some of the insights that i've seen are very unique to each company and they can actually be used so this is a practical use case where we're not necessarily making it harder to get an answer we're actually making it easier and we're making it less confusing for someone which is that's what sales is at the end of the day you're trying to build confidence so you got to be very mindful about how you go about adding ai into your workflow but once you got it going it's going to take a couple iterations it should ultimately save you time but don't try to just stamp it onto every single thing that you're doing because sometimes it's a little unnecessary yeah, if you're going to end up using AI to make your life easier, great, do it. Don't just plug in AI because everyone else is, because in some cases or in many cases, it's going to create a worse user experience, just like I experienced on Quora, and I'm probably less likely to click through on Quora in the future until they figure it out. Cool. All right, the next one is we wanted to talk about there is a guy that Mr. Beast hires. A lot of the top YouTubers, such as Eric, they hire this guy. His name is Patty Galloway. And what they did here was they studied 3.3 billion views to decode the YouTube shorts algorithm. So the questions they're trying to answer here is what makes a short go viral? How much money can they make? Are they actually good for growth? And then here are the findings. So we're going to, we're going to jump through this. Those of you that are watching on YouTube, you can follow around as I share my screen and we'll try to narrate as well as we can uh, through audio. So I'm going to share my screen now and here it is. So let's just go and take a look at here's the high level here, right? So we can see that. So he did a study, 33 YouTube channels with 54 shorts, 5,400 shorts included. So why don't we take a look at this real quick? Number of shorts by video length. Yep. So we can see the ones, most of the shorts are 30 to 40 seconds or so. And then the next level is 20 to 30 seconds by, by video length. And they even said really short shorts are rare. So zero to 10 seconds is extremely rare. Same with 10 to 20 seconds. Yep. And the next slide says, but what is the best length to make for performance? And you can see far and away, it is 50 to 60 seconds. It's average views by video length, 1.7 million. And the next level is 800K. That's 40 to 50 seconds. So it makes a lot of sense. If you're YouTube, wants and to if, keep you're you on not, the platform. If, if you're not seeing the graph as Eric's describing it, pretty much the longer the video, the more views it gets. The shorter the video, the less views it gets. Literally, the graph is just going up as the video link goes longer. And then let's continue on that thread too, Neil. So you can see the AVD or the average view duration for the short. You can see it's for the high point, 50 to 60 seconds, it's 4.1 million views for 50 to 60 seconds. And then for the next year, 40 to 50 seconds, it's 1.8 million. So it's a pretty significant difference. And this is just reinforcing if you're going to do shorts, try to make them 50 to 60 seconds long. Yep. 
So just making a long short isn't the goal. Making a short that holds people for as long as possible is. So the takeaway one is the shorts algorithm does unsurprisingly appear to favor longer videos that hold their, that hold viewer duration well. So that's, that's something most of us kind of know here. But here's another interesting thing. I don't know if you've seen this one, Neil. We've kind of talked about this one before, but if you're using YouTube studio, you can actually see the percent of people that chose to view it versus swipe away. And I believe this is going to become more of a factor long term because this kind of a, this kind of serves as your click through rate when people are watching your shorts. If you can't hold them in the first second or two, that basically is your thumbnail. The first second or two, if they swipe away, then that is a negative thing for your video. And that's the same that goes with just general social media. If people are just ignoring it, it's going to hurt you with views and likes and shares. Yeah, and you can see over here. So as you can see by this line, shorts with under 60% VVSA, so that's views versus swiped away, rarely performed well. So that's in the red over here, if those of you that can see the screen. The best performing shorts were typically between 70 and 90%. So you, it's, it's kind of the same thing as YouTube, right? You got to have a good thumbnail and you got to hold people. The AVD, you got to hold people, ideally to 50 to 60 seconds or so. So um, you, you decide how you want to play it there. I'm just going to, we're going to blow through this, this, um, a little faster now, but here's the second takeaway. So viewed versus swiped away is worth paying attention to. It's important to make your first second really punchy and engaging to hook viewers early into the video. Treat your intro like a thumbnail engagement metrics don't seem massively important, but we'll test more. And I'm going to go to takeaway number three. So those of you can just search for Patty Galloway, YouTube shorts, algorithm, Twitter, you can find this token. Number three is shorts are definitely a good way to grow your subscribers, especially considering how much lower effort is involved versus a long form video. Important to note, sub counts are not overly important in 2023, but everyone wants more. And then we'll finally go to the last takeaway and we'll, and we'll give our, our thoughts on this takeaway. Number four shorts definitely aren't money makers yet. However, let's give it some time. Expect the RPM, which is a revenue per thousand impressions to rise over the next 12 months. And this guy says, are shorts worth it? I think so. If you can do them without taking away from the focus of your long form videos, go for it. So Neil, what are our thoughts on this? YouTube's pushing short form content. They're trying to compete and it's more so Google. Google has web stories as well, which is similar. They're trying to compete with Instagram and TikTok. So they're going to push it hard. If you want the brand awareness, you want the views on your profile, you want more subscribers, forget the dollars and revenue. But if you want the other benefits like growth, you're going to need to create shorts. It's much easier to do so, but just like a long form video, it needs to be super engaging. It's really hard to A-B test uh, the first second in a short but let's, you know, if, if, for example, if you think about thumbnails, you can A-B test your YouTube thumbnails. So use your learnings from that to figure out how you should start off your shorts and how you should bait people or more so hook them. Bait's probably a bad word to use, but hook them and make sure you provide the same value. If you quote unquote bait them and say something crazy in the first second, but you don't deliver on that, you're just going to get huge drop-offs, which is going to hurt your reach in the long run. Yep. And the other thing too, is when I look at our workflow for making shorts, both Neil and I individually, we will have days where we record content. Typically, one day we'll be focused on long form. The other day we'll be focused on shorts just because sometimes it's a different mindset. And sometimes I might do both, but most of the time we try to split them up because you know, you try to crank out 15 to 20 shorts in a day. And then the long form days, you might crank out like a couple of those videos. So just keep that in mind. Um, but they are different beasts. And the what you want to be doing ideally is post natively. The repurposed videos are okay, uh, but when we do post natively, we find that they perform a lot better and that makes a lot more sense. But just the hook matters quite a bit. Think about the ADA model, which is attention, interest, desire, and action. So that is that.
Now, let's move on to our next, next topic. Thing, next topic. So I wanted to talk about this real quick, Neil, and then we, we can move on from this one because it's this week's news. We're not, we're not going to – I'm just going to share a graph, and we're going to leave it at that. So Budweiser's 30% drop in sales. I just wanted to share something. They decided to partner with um, Dylan Mulvaney. And uh, Dylan Mulvaney is known in the, the trans community. And I'm going to share this because Budweiser was trying to revive their reach, revive their brand. And I'm just going to share this Google graph and we'll, we'll kind of move on from, from this one because um, we have other topics to cover. So here is the Google graph. This is Google Trends. You can see over the last five-year period in the United States, Budweiser has kind of been declining in popularity or more so breaking even, I believe. And change they decided change to... The past- Change it from past five years to past uh, all time or 2004. Past all time, 2004. Yeah, yeah they have been declining. Yeah, they have been declining. You can easily see it. But what's the number on the screen right before the spike? The spike is at 100. It's always at 100. But go down right below. So you're looking at more than a 10x difference, um, closer to like 11, 12x difference which is kind of massive in spiking yeah. brand queries yep and you can see they they kind of went hand in hand so, so dylan Mulvaney with the with kind of this promotion they both shot up like a rocket uh budweiser i wonder who, who's who's a really popular person we can throw in here just to see tom maybe cruise. Like a logan paul tom, tom cruise. cruise or logan paul tom cruise why are you making tom cruise man because he's consistent everyone already knows tom cruise <laughs> yeah, see you can tom see cruise. on this graph tom cruise's brand is is it bigger it's bigger than uh, uh all right we'll see about that okay okay all right all right you win <laughs> you win tom cruise is more consistent all right anyway that's um that's our thought on on that one Logan it's, paul spikes are probably joining wwe and the floyd mayweather fight those are probably the big yeah, ones you you're probably right so anyway, those are our thoughts on that one. Um, you know, you decide how, how you want to play it, but we just wanted to share the stats with you. So that's that. Uh, next topic is on Twitter blocking Substack links. Neil, you want to go on this one? Yeah. So if there's a Substack link in Twitter, it's blocked and some people may hate on it. But if I owned a business, why would I want to promote any other? Well, hold on. Yeah, let, me, let me add some more context here real quick. So the reason that... Twitter started to block Substack links. Was part of the reason was Substack kind of made its own version of Twitter, right? And you know, Elon will do what he wants to do, and so he's like, okay, yeah, he decided to, you know, whoever's posting Substack links, we're either going to take away the reach, or you know, we're gonna we're gonna block those links straight up. And you know, it is what it is. And a lot of people have been using Twitter to grow their Substack accounts, which is a, a version of your email newsletter and your your email service provider. Go ahead, Neil. Dude, have you seen the Elon Musk BBC interview? I did, yeah. Where he, where he called too. the guy a liar. It's so funny because like, the guy you are a liar. That is a farce. Yeah, because yeah, he's trying to come at him. He's just like, he's like, yeah. There's a lot more misinformation and hate speech, and he's just like, cool. Uh, can you please give me an example of it? And the guy couldn't come up with one example. He's like, well, over the last few months, we've been seeing. Can you give me an example of it? And then he's starting to drill Elon on things like misinformation. He's like, well, BBC's been around for a hundred years. Have you guys ever had misinformation? The guy's like, yeah. And uh, I like it. Elon's giving a taste of his own, uh, of their own medicine back to them. But look, if, if you own a business, you have all right to block one of your competitors from leveraging your profiles, your platform to grow. Why would you promote your competition? 
it doesn't make sense. Even if someone's a similar type of co- competitor, but not really a direct competitor, more like an indirect, why not block them? Some people may not like it, but who cares? You're in business to make money. You're not in business to grow your competition. Yeah, I mean, it's a private it's a privately held company. He can kind of do whatever he wants. The other lesson here is you don't want to build on someone else's land. So you want to, once you have a channel that's figured out, then you want to figure out how you can diversify as quickly as possible. And then, you know, the channels that you can quote unquote own are like your email list, right? I'm, I'm air quoting right now. And you can own your SMS list to a degree, right? You have a lot more control over those. No platform can just say, Oh, you're, you're going to be banned or we're going to shut you down because a lot of people have these thread bros, I'll just call it, on Twitter. They've been growing their substacks through writing these long threads that get good reach. And at the very end, they say, hey, subscribe to my my substack. So that's what it is. I think, you know, is Elon, is he doing crazier and crazier stuff that he probably shouldn't involve himself with? Like, you know, what he did with the, the, the Twitter sign? Uh, probably not. But, you know, he can do whatever he wants. So it is what it is. We can... uh and here, this actually dovetails well into the next subject, but did you want to add anything else? No, let's talk about Beehive and how you're using them as your newsletter platform now. Yeah, so Beehive is another email service provider or ESP. And Substack, I kind of look at it as a newsletter. They're also like an ESP too because they handle the deliverability or the, the delivery of the emails for you. And Beehive is interesting because they're another platform. It's spelled B E E. H-I-I-V, and they were created by the people, these former Morning Brew employees, which is, that's also a newsletter as well. And from their experiences working at Morning Brew, which is, they do like 70 or $80 million a year right now. They're bought by Business Insider. But from their experiences, they learned, hey, what a actual good email should look like. And so in Beehive, the reason why I'm moving over from my current ESP is because they have one, they have discoverability features, meaning that if I write a newsletter, it will also recommend other similar newsletters as well. And we can all kind of discover each other. That's one nice piece of it. The second piece is it has nice referral features in there. So I don't know if people remember when you subscribe to the hustle or the morning brew newsletters, there's like this, these referral kind of prizes you can win for the more referrals that you give out. So that's built in as well. And it has a whole host of other features that just makes it really easy to grow a newsletter. And it's really friendly. And I do believe newsletters are one of the great ways to grow your audience and then figure out whether you want to monetize through ads or monetize through the own services and products that you provide. So that's why we think it's good. And we've talked to a lot of other email pros more so, I talked to a guy that helped grow the Hustle newsletter and the Milk Road newsletter, and he recommends Beehive. He uses Beehive. I've talked to a handful of other ones. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to move over to Beehive as well, and they will actually help you do it. They're not paying me to say this, but that is my reasoning. Here's the thing. If you have a super popular newsletter, I don't know if I would be using Beehive. It's not the cheapest solution. I'm not saying it's not great. It's more so if you have, like for me, I get two to 300,000 new email newsletter subscribers per month. The last thing I want is other newsletters being promoted in my blast. But on the flip side, if you have a smaller newsletter, you're just starting out, I think it's a great solution to actually grow your list faster. But on the flip side, if you're already really established, you have a big audience, it may not be in your best interest to use it. Um, but maybe they have an option where you can block that off where they're not pushing other people's newsletters within yours. Yeah. 
by the way, I, I should have clarified this piece. So our main newsletter for the ad agency single grain, we're keeping it on the current ESP and we are moving our weekly newsletter over to Beehive. So that is a smaller newsletter. So I just want to clarify that it's kind of, um, it is a opportunity to try before we buy almost before putting all our eggs into one basket. So food for thought. Yeah, I like it overall, but my biggest issue is the moment you said, hey, they're going to end up promoting other people's newsletters when you send your blast. I hate that. And it oh, doesn't no, no, work. But that, that's not forced. You can, you can turn that off if you want. Okay, well, if you can turn that off, then I don't really see an issue with it. But that was my biggest pet peeve with it. Yeah. Let's talk about the next one on the HBO Max rebrand. Do you want to give some context around it? Go for it. Well, you do know, what was it, John Wick or was it uh, Creed? One of those movies will not be on HBO Max. It was one of them. I had no I idea. You're on. the one that watches more TV than I do. So, so if, if you guys don't know, HBO Max, um, they're rebranding and it's going to be called, what is it going to be called now? Warner something? No, Max. Or Warner Max. Max. No, um, just Max, I think. Is it just Max? I thought it was Warner something. No? No. Yeah, let's let's Google. Make sure Max rebrand to Max. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's just Max. So, but when you look at HBO Max, this is first a pet peeve and this has nothing to do with marketing. If you ever download HBO Max videos and you go fly on an airplane, it does not work and you cannot watch them on an airplane. I don't know why. I've tried so many times. Oh, that's true. And, I just don't get it. Then why let me even download this if I can't watch it when I'm not on Wi-Fi? It doesn't make sense to me. Either way, uh, it makes sense on the rebrand because why limited to HBO Max? And what's funny is when I, I, I pay for a lot of the streaming services. So Netflix, Disney, Paramount Plus, I have Peacock. I have a lot of them. Uh, Apple, uh, Apple TV. So I'm pretty much paying for most of the service most of the services out there, even Hulu. But when I think of HBO Max, I'm mainly thinking of like HBO and Showtime, even though Showtime's not really on there. Um, you can get Showtime stuff on Paramount Plus, at least the last I checked. Uh, but getting away from that rebrand, I think is a smart move because it'll take away the stigma that it's just quote unquote HBO Max and their limited inventory or category being uploaded because that's not really true right now. There's more stuff uploaded than just what they show on HBO, but that's what a lot of people think. Here's my take on it. I think the name Max is a nice name. I just wonder short term if that's a good move because the name HBO has so much legacy. HBO, when I think about HBO, is high quality content. I think about Entourage. Was was Entourage on HBO? It was, right? I think Pretty about sure just good was, shows, yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah, so Game, Game of, of Thrones, Thrones Entourage, all really good shows. Yep. And so it, I, I see there being like, why why not just, I mean, there's been an HBO before, but why why like throw away the HBO name? That's kind of where I'm coming from. I don't know if there's any divesture, divesture of um, like brands there. I think maybe they're offloading HBO from Warner. Was that what it was, Neil? Well, right now I'm on Google Trends right now, but... Uh, Warner Brothers or Warner Bros as a topic is not as popular as HBO. So based on what you're saying, they probably should just keep it HBO Max. That's what people are typing and searching in. I think if they just end up changing it to Max, they're going to lose a lot of brand. It it, it makes sense on why they're trying to do it. But in the short run, they're going to get hit on brand searches uh, and what they'll just have to do is spend the advertising dollars all over again and build up the new brand Max. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, we're talking about brand equity here, right? When you think about here's here's a good example of a rebrand here. Typically, you see rebrands happen when either the company isn't doing well, like for example, um, Time Warner becoming Spectrum or something like the cable, right? Because they just got so many bad reviews. That's one. The other one is Facebook rebranding to Meta, and that's just led to more confusion, I believe, than any help in the last couple of years. I still call it Facebook, Neil. I don't know what you call it, so. Yeah, I did too. Here's an interesting stat. So I'm looking at Google Trends on my screen. Max is 83 times more popular than HBO Max. And yes, HBO Max does rank number one on Google for Max. But there's a lot of other Maxes that people are looking for, such as Max official website or Max Music. There's also Max on YouTube, um, Max Market, Max, which is a movie from 2015. And the list goes on and on and on. What you're going to have is you're going to have some confusion because maybe people are looking for Remax or maybe they're looking for some other brand that has Max in there. Yep. All right. So that one's that. I The last topic I wanted to cover here was from a friend of mine. His name's Greg Eisenberg. He's kind of known on the Twitters as being the guy that talks about community. And what he's done is he's doing a 30-day case study with ChatGPT on how to grow his TikTok to 1 million followers in 30 days. And so I'm going to share this. I'm going to share my screen here. Those of you that can see it, watch us on YouTube. Okay. So here's day 30 over here. And he's actually made a TikTok. So day 30 of letting ChatGPT run my life to get me to 1 million followers. Update. It's kind of working. I'm still kind of bad at TikTok. So basically, he's getting like a script each day to help him get there. And I think now, so he has a, he's at 818 followers. He started from zero three days ago. Keep in mind though, it's not exactly fair because he does have 330,000 followers on Twitter. Um, so I think some people are, are following his challenge here, but I think there's a couple lessons here. One is you build in public. You're going to, you're going to have content for the next 30 days and you're just telling a story. And this post alone posted five hours ago already has 70,000 reach. So I think he's going to build a TikTok with at least a couple thousand, let's say 20, 30, 40,000 followers or so, at least that gets him a lot closer to the million goal that he's aiming for. So I think this is a fun experiment. The other thing is I think more people can learn from this because this format was literally taken from someone else that did this a couple weeks ago, trying to build a business from scratch with ChatGPT assisting. So your mileage may vary, but I think this is an interesting content format. Yeah, it is really interesting content format, and he's built up a large following uh, have, walking through the journey and having everyone follow him. Yep. We're talking about the it's, business guy or we're talking about Greg here? Greg. Greg already had this following. I'm talking about the, the, the other guy, but the other guy built a following because it was such a unique format on Twitter. Yeah, you could end up doing that – when I, back in the day, I had something called my journey to a hundred thousand dollars a month. So by just showing, and I didn't realize that Greg had the following beforehand because I learned about Greg from this. But, um, when I did my journey from zero to a hundred thousand dollars a month, I started getting a lot more new people following me when I was breaking down everything that I learned going from zero to a hundred thousand dollars a month. And I created a new business from scratch and I was just breaking down everything that people could learn as I was learning it. Did that actually work out? Can you, can you, because uh, I remember you did that. This was like 10 years ago or so, but did you actually get to 100,000? 
I did. It took me less than 12 months. I think it was like on the 10th month or something. I'm taking a guess on when I hit it. Now, 100 grand a month in revenue, just to clarify here, does not mean 100 grand in profit. So it doesn't mean I'm making 100 grand in profit and putting that in my pocket or I wasn't at least back then from that business. But I was breaking down how anyone can do marketing, anyone can do really well. And I was just showcasing, hey, if I could do it from scratch, you can too. And I had my audience pick a business. They picked a random business that I wasn't an expert in, built it up from zero to a hundred grand a month in revenue in less than 12 months. And uh, it was in e-commerce, worked really well. Yeah. So Neil spent $12 million to make 1.2. I'm just kidding. <laughs> cool. So we're, I was limited on budget is, too, by the way. I told people I wouldn't spend more than X dollars. I forgot what the amount was. Is that on the Quicksprout blog still? I think they deleted it. The guys who ended up taking it over deleted oh. a lot of the well, old content you know, and then just focused. It is what it is. All right, everyone. That's that's the pod for for this week. Let us know what you think in the reviews. The reviews are helping a lot, by the way. Please leave more reviews as our rankings are climbing high again in the on the podcast rankings. So thank you so much, and have a good rest of your day.